Lights. Camera. It's Cinemagic. Cinemagic. Oh and yeah, that roll that intro to the magic. Note to our producer, make a auto-tune us and make us sound good, right? Is that what happened? Everybody who's hearing me right now, I'm guessing I'm auto-tuned because our producer did it. Um, auto-tune. Auto-tune. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing he did it. So welcome to Cinemagic Podcast, where hopefully we're auto-tuned right now. Well, only for that singing section. For that singing, really. <laughs> I personally uh, am a terrible, terrible singer. You know, horrible. So I don't know I about am- you. I'm the Tiger Woods of singing. Wait a minute. Um, okay, so the reason why you don't want to say you're the Tiger, because, you know, Tiger and... No, I, I said it directly. I'm the Tiger Woods of, of, of singing. Oh, you now, mean like, question. like, like Am golf? I Tiger when he was very good or Tiger when he couldn't win anything? That's for you to decide. Uh, and hopefully our producer made me sound good. <laughs> anyways, I'm your host. With the greatest Tiger Woods singing voice, Jonathan Gondois, with my co-host, the actual better singer, Rick Acevedo. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you think I'm the better singer, but lies will get you nowhere. (laughs) Um. (laughs) (laughs) And after this last weekend, we actually are celebrating here in the States the 4th of July weekend. So uh, just a little bit of magic. We record these uh, the weekend before they come out. So... Uh, if we seem a little inebriated or anything else, it's because we're celebrating America. America. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's a celebration day. So instead, since we're celebrating, instead of coming in with something, we actually want to talk with one of uh, one of an interview, basically, right? One of the best I people suppose. that I know who's going to tell us stories about on the set. Now, this person I think is really great. He's worked on a lot of great things. Uh, some of them you may have seen, uh, some of them you may have not, but it's always interesting to hear his story from the set. But we couldn't get any of those people, so instead we're going to talk to Rick Acevedo over here about his time on set. Uh, <laughs> That's low, low blow. <laughs> <laughs> I was kidding. So Rick, I know we've told them before, but uh, t- tell us again, before we get into anything, just a little bit of your background and like uh, just a little bit of that resume and what you worked on before. Well, man, um... I've worked on shows like the Voice franchise, La Voz Kids, which is part of it. And for those that don't know what I mean by franchised is um, shows like The Voice, The Mass Singer, and everything like that are, are shows that there's probably about a you know between eighty and a hundred versions of in different markets, um, and we can get into that a little bit later. Uh, <clears throat> You know, I've worked on a little bit of reality television. I've worked on documentary film. And, you know, I've also worked on shows that are considered docu, but are really kind of reality also, like Nightwatch and stuff like that, that uh, you can see in an uh, A&E. So, yeah. So very interesting, uh, uh, very background. Now, I have to ask, and you're going to get us more into there. Yeah. Um, what did you like working on the most? I just have to, I have to ask that to get off, you know. Uh, you know, I've loved everything that I've worked on, but probably Lavos was was my favorite. Definitely Lavos was my favorite. So, since you said the voice was your favorite. As, as far as stuff where I was working for someone else, because my favorite favorite is things that I've done with you know, the, all of us here in Press Killing Productions like Searching for Beauty Polly, which we're definitely going to talk about. And I got a lot to say about that. Some of it not so great, but I'm not afraid of saying the shit that I need to say with words, <laughs> uh, not ridiculous actions. And, um, and then what we're doing, obviously, coming up, which I cannot really talk a lot about, but, uh, but you know, but you guys will know eventually. Huh? Remember, right, skirts, no, so skirts. For all the people out there, uh, you know, as we started this podcast, to really talk, and we've done a lot of it, but talk about independent filmmaking as well and filmmaking in general. 
a lot of our listeners may have not had experience of being on a set before. For me, that's something small to something large, right, that you've been on. So you've been mm-hmm. on small things to large things that's right. uh, and all that in between. So Miguel, some stories. What it's like to work on a big set or a small set or, or what do you <laughs> – Tell us difference. What is it like to work on a big set? I feel, let's go with big set. Everybody I feel like wants to know what it's like to work on a big set, right? So let's take it big and go small so we can see those intimate changes about how Rick Acevedo went from a, from a bright-eyed man to jaded to now an <laughs> independent visionary. <laughs> that, is that how the trailer goes? Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> In a world where everything is bright, one man is jaded. <laughs> the Rick Acevedo story. Um, so the biggest set by far that I worked on was obviously um, Love Us, and, and the reason why that's the biggest set obviously it's it's a it was I want to say between fifteen to twenty million dollar budget for a weekly show. Um, you know, the setup. You know, seeing the stage set up. Seeing those chairs wrapped up, you know, the famous red chairs. That is, and, and, and how everything is built. And, you know, the what funny thing wrapped is... Wrapped up on the chairs, I just have to ask. You mean like... Wrapped up, wrapped? just wrapped up. They were, they were literally wrapped up in, um... It wasn't foil. <laughs> it was... <laughs> what do you call it? In saran, not saran wrap. I think it was saran wrap. Something like that, you know. Just wrapped up, brought in, you know... They were building the stage as we were, we, you know, we were touring the first, my first day on set, the, uh, the executive producer said, I'm going, well, supervising producer, she said, I'm going to give you guys a tour of the stage so you can check it out. The stage was being built and it was in a sound, sound stage at uh, Universal Studios Florida. Um, it was kind of cool because we were... In the back lot at Universal Studios Florida, and for those that don't really know the the story behind that, those those sound stages were actually built before the park itself, and they were operational sound stages. So for those of you that are you know history buffs or television history buffs, like the new Leave It to Beaver, uh, Swamp Thing, I believe was shot there. Superboy was shot there. Everything Nickelodeon was starting mm-hmm. to move to those sound stages, and it wasn't. As big as what you would see in Universal City, but it was still pretty impressive. However, a soundstage, you know, the the way that they take over a soundstage, they close it up and make it into an almost small city. And there's divisions to that. So they drape it off, and you have, like, the stage, the crowd, you have the back, you have the different sets, all of that within one soundstage, which is kind of weird. Because if you get lost or disoriented, it can feel freaky. So, you know, being on on that sort of stage and knowing what this was for, because at that point in time, uh, Lavos Kids was getting about roughly five to six million viewers per week that an episode was released. Um, mind you, these these episodes were not live; they were shot basically live to, to you know, the, like the last four weeks are shot live to tape the first. Uh, nine episodes are shot within two different shooting periods because you have to have time for the stage to you know change for different phases of the show but um, being on that sort of set it gets your pulse running immediately you you get you get what I call the little correct nervousness which means you get nervous and so you're like am I am I you know, am I doing everything right? Am I not? Because you're looking at a major, major production. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't get lost on you. You know, you don't spend as much time on set because from the six or seven months that the show starts where you set up your production office and you start pretty much putting all the dots in a row to when the show ends, there's really only, over that seven-month period, there's really only, I want to say... 12 days, 12 days when things are shot. So wait, so over seven months, you only shot for 12 days of that seven months, Uh huh. right? Uh-huh. So did they occupy the soundstage the whole seven months or they rebuilt it every time? 
they had to rebuild it. The, the soundstage was already rented and ready for that. But the specific periods was like they had to do a lot of rebuilding because, for example, uh, in a show like Voice, with, with any competition music show, they would have, you know, the qualifying, right, mm. the, the blind auditions. Then they have the battles, which is a completely different set. And then they have lives, what's called lives, which is basically shot on... Um, pretty much like a real time to to then edit and send to send to network so yeah they have they have to change that stuff so you're not occupying the whole time but essentially you know you're there the whole time because we didn't just occupy those sound stages we had the production offices and the production offices were in the production building so for example we would have post <clears throat> Post was done downstairs, and then on another floor, a lot of times, or even on another building, they would have the like line producer offices and stuff like that, where they would be dealing more with the logistic aspects, putting stage together, really production management. Mm -hmm. So everything was, you know, story was one thing, music was one thing, and then logistics were something totally different. Everything, like the show, had its own units. Yeah, and, and I'm guessing that's the biggest difference when we think about going from small independent filmmaking, where usually you got a small team doing everything, to something so large, which is, sounds very much, for our listeners out there, kind of like a corporation, right? That you have this building, this floor does this, this floor does this. Almost, you know? yeah. <laughs> this division <laughs> over here. Almost, yeah. Uh, you know, the departments, because you, you, know, you also have like the travel department and all that other stuff. You know, the departments that really meet the most would be a lot of times, you know, uh, music and story because they had to. Um, and that's that's just the way that the show was was crafted together. But um, but yeah, everything was set up almost like a corporation and, it, and it's very precise and very specific. And that whether you believe in those types of shows or not is irrelevant if you ever have the opportunity to work in something like that you'll learn a great deal about what how important it is to organize yourself a hundred steps you know 200 300 steps before the actual thing to lay it out in a way where you are able to control variables that you're you know you're hoping that those variables won't manifest themselves, but I mean, they do, especially when you're dealing with talent. Yeah. Um, I remember I had a, a stage mother, because it, with that show, the mothers would show up with the kids, they would do, at six o'clock in the morning, I was running a, a segment where they would walk in down a hallway, almost what appeared to be a hallway, you know, appearances are everything. So they would walk in a, in a hallway and I would have to make sure that within a three to five minute period, I would get various shots of these kids walking in and doing, you know, doing something that will make them separate themselves. Mm. So I remember this one kid's uh, stage mother. Wait, um, wait, right before you go in that story, did you have to coax them to do something? or I had to direct them 100%. I had to tell them exactly what I wanted because... I have five minutes here. I need mm -hmm. to get three to five shots. I'm directing a camera operator to do something specific. And this particular shot wasn't handheld camera. This was a camera that was on a dolly. So I, it's not just the camera operator is the dolly and, and you know, the dolly has to be able to come in at a, at a specific period of time. So I have to be able to coordinate that with them. And it's really quick stuff. It's not, but at the same time, while I'm doing that, you know, there's literally right over on the other side, those segments where they're talking to the singers, you know, it's basically it moves on like you come in on the wall, you know, walking in, right? You go, you do your interview. Okay. Then I have to, for continuity, do the blue room, which is where they're getting ready and they're talking to the person that's hosting the blue room because the show had like two or three different hosts not host but two, you know various yeah. different personalities um each handling something different and so 
with something like that, I have to be very particular about how I use my time. Mm. Um, and I would, you know, I was always with a walkie in my ear, which is very, can be very intimidating, especially when you're dealing with EPs, like EPs that don't just run the show, but that have a, a an inner working with the company itself, which in this case was Top of Media. It's a multi-billion dollar conglomerate, so you're automatically thinking, okay, I, I got to look good here. I can't be, you know. So... And EPs are executive producers. EPs are, yeah, EPs are executive producers. Um, some have more power than others. You know, a lot more. So I'm, I'm sitting there, and this um, lady comes in and says, do we have to do this again? This, you know, she was kind of a stage mother. And I said, no. You absolutely have to do it again. <laughs> okay? Let me emphasize absolutely. And she said... Well, I mean, my son's one of the stars of the show, and that's when I really lit up. And I said, ma'am, with all due respect, we are all stars. I get it. But your son is one of 120, <laughs> and I need to do this with several more. So please, go back and do it again. And she's like, well, I need to talk to the producer. And I said, well, yeah, no, you are talking to the producer, so please go back and do it again. <laughs> and I felt terrible about it, but in sets like that, <clears throat> and this is an unfortunate situation, but in sets like that and really in any set, you have to be able to establish certain dominance and authority right away because, again, th these are the sort of variables that I'm talking about, things that you're not ready for, but you have to deal with it when it happens because everything is so, you know, so fluid, there's so much movement, there's so much taking place at that point in time. It's ridiculous. So you're you're always kind of in those big sets on time crunches. Does that make sense? One hundred percent. You're like you're like I gotta I gotta get this done. I have something else to do. I'm supposed to do it at this time. This needs to be done because time is money when shooting. Uh <laughs> but even look, even you know, I started in reality television, and I mean, you could technically say that this is a reality contest. So. Um, I remember even though was, you had a story room, which we're going to want to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Even though there's a story room, you have to, you know, like it's, it, it is what it is. I remember I started with a company called uh, Pink Sneakers Productions. They used to do like Hogan's, Hogan Knows Best and uh, Brooke Knows Best and all that other stuff. They did quite a few things for Bravo, for CMT. And uh, for CMT in particular, they had a show which eventually turned into a pretty successful franchise for them called uh, My Big Redneck Wedding which spawned the production of a what was going to be a pilot or was what was a pilot but i don't think it ever got picked up i mean they they got picked up with my big retina vacation all their stuff but it was my big retina bash okay so uh, is that a fighting show they just uh no it was literally about rednecks having parties <laughs> very scary I'm telling you that right now. That right there will test your metal in every image. <laughs> way. So how, how, how is it scary? Well, I'll tell you, man. Uh, first of all, we had to shoot this bash. And as a gag, I said, wow, cool. Wouldn't it be awesome if they did a, uh, like, a like a toilet funnel? for beer they went and bought a toilet at a home depot this is in a, in a place called it's a newport ritchie like moon lake something like that they went and bought a toilet and they did a uh deer stand there was a deer stand there sorry and they mounted the toilet on the deer stand to do beer funnels so already you know and this is days before already you know that this is going to be freaking insane yeah I get there, and like any PA, I get tasked with doing everybody's releases. Because for shows, and really anything that you do, where you're going to feature someone and someone's likeness, you have they have to release you for it. Okay, that is, um, that is a compliance thing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, it's, you know... 
it, it is what it is. So I'm sitting there taking releases, and one guy comes in with a gun wearing a hoodie. Uh, and he says, what if I take my gun out and start shooting shit, man? You can take that on it. And I was like, hey, listen, I don't make those decisions. It sounds like a great old time, <laughs> but I don't make those decisions. Now, the crew was not that big because a crew for what would be considered documentary and everything, you and I know about this. You know, you mm-hmm. can have a crew as, as little as five people or as big as 10, 15 people, but it, crews for documentaries, depending on what you're shooting or, or what's reality-based or whatever, you know, aren't typically that big for something like that. So we had the, the camera guys doing the camera, the director, and stuff like that, but we did not have that many people on set. Mm. Um, once the party really got going, these guys were drinking a lot and stuff, and I remember there's one guy who called himself Stretch, and I'm going to tell you why he called himself Stretch, okay? Mm. Apparently the fella... Um, didn't have any testicles right oh okay all right so just go with me on this this is you know, okay okay i'm trying to figure out how no testicles equals stretch and nothing nothing feels good <laughs> it just to see mm. where the the sack basically was just apparently yeah so he's looking. just stretching it yeah yeah just That's... stretching the sack i don't know uh so he got naked Please. oh <laughs> <laughs> and started... i was hoping it was not going there <laughs> oh Naked with cowboy boots. He arrived. This guy was such a badass. He arrived in a four-wheeler. All right? You know, you can hear the four-wheeler. Stretch comes in. He's wearing his hat. Had the, like, long beard. Skinny guy. Uh, overalls without a, a shirt, I believe. Mm. Um, he starts dancing naked to the um, grand old Cockney Joe song. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's, and then this one drunk guy, big dude, I don't know why he did this, but he got up and punched him, knocked, stretched the hell out, and then he sits down on this swing that had been built for the purpose of the show, which was made up of an old couch with some rope on a tree. (laughs) And... (laughs) And he proceeds to, you know, defecate on himself. Oh! You know, and then he falls off the couch where he had defecated, you know, and starts crying. (laughs) Apologizing to Stretch. And I'm witnessing all this, and I'm like, man, they better damn well not ask me to do anything uh, with regards to this. Which they didn't. I mean, it was just something that happened. But, um... Wait, because since you were a PA at that time, would your job been to clean up? I, hey, man, I am not cleaning up Stretch's sack, and I am <laughs> definitely not cleaning up that guy's gigantic mound of poop. They just, but this was toward the end too, when they were shooting. So it's like one of those things where you're outnumbered, and you're like hoping against all hope that nothing goes wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, a couple of drunken rednecks fighting each other has the appearance of nothing going wrong. But then when you have people also talking about, you know, can I bring my gun to the set? That's some scary shit, too. Mm-hmm. You know? It's so a very unfamiliar, small group of filmmakers, basically. And it's, someone else's territory. Exactly. And the thing is, you know, they get drunk and start talking. You, you're best just listen. Right. Mm. And that's one thing that I learned very early on. Um, when you're on any set, no matter what it's for, you listen. Mm. Listen to everything, get familiar with everything, and know and understand what the vibe is. Because mm. the minute that you fail to understand that, it's the minute that you're going to get lost immediately. Do do people, especially in those realities and TV shows, do you find that they hype themselves up a lot? Like, because the cameras are rolling, they're going exaggerating and doing more than they usually yeah. would do if yeah. the cameras weren't there. Absolutely. Look, 
Anybody who thinks that reality television is reality is living in another planet because you can't solve life's problems in 30 minutes to an hour. That does not happen. Okay? So, yeah, it's heavily produced. And, and, and precisely that's what, ex what is expected, especially if there's a more comedic side to it. Mm. You know? Um... You know, if it's a re, uh, a celebrity-based show, because I remember um, meeting Hulk Hogan at the Pink Sneakers offices, you know, and this was back in like 2008 when he was apparently going through some issues, mm. but, you know, at that point, it's like you're talking to your celebrity about how can you make them happier. That's another thing, mm. you know? Um that that you learn and, and yeah but it's all hype there's it's for me it's all hype that's why i personally while it was a great experience and it allowed me to learn and understand a lot of things about how to do certain things because there's always something that you can learn i'm not particularly interested in reality television at all mm. you know because of that because they hype it up mm -hmm. you're not letting anything be natural you're just doing things for the sake of of like this cheap pop, so to speak. Yeah. So you started at a PA working at was uh, my regnet bash. Was that the first one you worked at? Oh, actually, no. I did five. I did when I was doing that. I I was on like five show units. Okay. Like five show units at at that time. And then um, I would eventually, with that same company, move up to um, Transcriber, which is which is a completely different job altogether. Uh, it's a lot safer um, yeah. because it, as a transcriber, you transcribe what you hear. You don't have to be there. <laughs> it's almost like a post job, basically. So, so I I, I want to go back just so just in case the people don't know what you're doing. Can you describe what units are like your five show unit and what that means, really? Well. Um, they had five or six shows that they were producing, so each show had a contained unit of of, uh, of staff that worked for that specific show. So you had, you know, specific producers working on this show, you know, a specific crew going out to that, you know, to shoot for that particular show. So it was it was separate. Each show was its own contained unit. You don't have you don't have the same. Um, overall um, staff working on every single show because you would wear everybody out mm -hmm. so yeah so so typically for them so your unit you're attached to just my big regnet bash right Which i would also do yeah, weddings for that, for that night bash. no um that unit would also do wedding especially if something was being shot in um in florida you know, like they would also do wedding. Bash was only a a, a um, pilot episode, mm -hmm. but yeah, they would because it was the same. You know, because they were shooting the the pilot, they were like hey, we're in between episodes, so we're gonna do this next um, before we go out to shoot and everything else. But so, go ahead. So, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. But at the same time, also, I was working with um, Adrenaline Films, which was. Like Mike Murray, the owner of Adrenaline Films, was basically one of the like DPs for Survivor and has done stuff for History Channel. That's like a humongous uh, company. They do like all the commercials. I I learned what I know from a technical perspective from those guys, and mm -hmm. they were freaking amazing. I mean, those guys were epic. You know, so. So shout out to Adrenaline Films because you said you were working with them as well. <laughs> I was, yeah, and you know, Adrenaline Films though. Like, one of the biggest things that I, you know, was brought into was when um, Universal Studios was uh, creating the Simpsons ride and Harry Potter at the same time. Um, actually, Simpsons came before, just slightly before Harry Potter. They were already ready. But, like, I would go and assist in the shoots for the Simpsons. And when they, like, had a huge, I don't know, probably $450,000 maquette for... Hogwarts, no, not Hogsmeade, the mm -hmm. entire area before it was completely built. We were shooting on a, on a green screen, those um, Harry Potter commercials, like red cameras when they had mm -hmm. just come out. And it was, oh man, it was so awesome. <laughs>
So you're working on Big Magnet Bash, you're working on uh, with Adrenaline Films and Universal stuff, then what comes next? What came next is I started focusing on writing, you know? I started focusing on writing, so I would do um, ghosting or doing like actual, you know, uh, scripts that I would be paid to do by people that were trying to get their own projects ahead. That's actually how I got linked up with uh, Glenn Quirk. Shout out to him for the Nevils. Um, and I started really doing that, honestly, because it's what I wanted to do. And I actually remember Mike Murray telling me, he's like, if you really are passionate about something, then you need to go out and do it no matter what. Mm-hmm. And he's a guy that basically started a massive business with just a single camera. So mm-hmm. that's what I focused on. Um, you know, I, I ghosted a couple of books. I remember I wrote a, a treatment for this um, this lady who wanted to do a show about etiquette um, and wanted to pitch it as a reality series, which I was like, well, I don't know how that's going to work, but okay, you know, I'll, I'll write the treatment for you, no problem. So I was doing a lot of that, you know, right. and focusing so, on that. So that's great. And so the showing your multi-hatted producing and just in case people don't know ghosting does mean writing without credit right that's the best way to say um sometimes it depends really on the agreement mm. um it, you know a ghostwriter might some sometimes get with credit so for example you let's say jonathan you ghostwrite a book for someone you know my memoirs by john doe with jonathan grandois mm-hmm so that's a lot of times you'll get that credit, but it really just go. It, it differs from person to person. Um, with a script, a lot of times you don't really get the credit. Um, in my case, I'm glad that I didn't put a lot of the stuff that I was handed. Uh, <laughs> my people, I remember this one guy handed me a script that was. I don't. I don't want to say it just because it was so terrible, but it took me one night to rewrite everything into a into a 90 page script that was actually plausible (laughs) yeah (laughs) so that takes you so we know that you're writing now so what takes you to the bigger sets like the voice and everything else from there unfinished business Mm -hmm. you want you want i don't care what anybody says okay you want to get to that point there's something clawing at you that you want to get to that point. So I'm going to tell you the story about how that happened. I get called, um, you know, by the career development department at Full Sail, and they say, hey, Talpa Media is coming in. Um, they're looking for people. Would you like to interview? I said, sure, no problem. Um then uh, like two minutes later they say man they're all filled up all right but espn is also coming in that day so we're gonna put you in touch with espn um and i think at that point it was just the people from espn in florida that do like the stuff that's based out of wide world of sports which i think Mm -hmm. they sometimes shoot sports center there um like yes, they'll shoot it like once a year, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, okay, no problem. But then they call me back and they say, hey, the, one of the people canceled from the Talpa interview. Would you like to come in? And I, you know, still, do you like to do these two interviews in one day? I said, I'm fine. You, you guys know me. You know what I'm capable of. So, yes. So, and this is how, how small the world is. I come in to interview for the for the uh, voice job, and it was originally an associate producer position. Okay, mm. and I'm talking to one of the producers or two producers there interview, and both of them ladies, both of them very kind, very nice. One of them I already knew from Pink Sneakers Productions. We didn't really know know each other, but I knew who she was, mm. Liz, and they loved me, and. They liked me for ESPN too, but ESPN, um, you know, they weren't offering a lot of money. They weren't offering a lot. It was just like a, it's like, hey, you'll do posts for, you know, thirteen bucks an hour, fourteen bucks an hour, and I'm thinking to myself, most post people make, 
way more than 13 or 14 dollars an hour mm. so i go there do these two interviews but then i start calling every like i time my calls and my my emails to liz and and um every three days and then sometimes i wear wear wait four days and liz told me she's like you're such like a persistent individual that i said we should put you in post so i got a promotion before i even got the job <laughs> i got a freaking promotion to post and segment producer before i even got the job mm-hmm. um and they brought me in doing that for like a rate that was about 10 times the amount that espn was offering <laughs> per week it was a ridiculous amount um and that's that's how I ended up there. Um, I, you know, I, I kicked the door down to get the opportunity. Like I wanted that. I really wanted that. I wanted to get to that level and put myself at that level because I knew that I belonged. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. You can't be in this business if you don't feel like you belong at any level. Like if you're just happy to do little things or whatever, then it's a hobby. Mm-hmm. For me, it's not a hobby. For me, it's a point of I want to be big. I want to. Yeah. I want to continue to tear doors down every time. I want to hear how much I can't do something, so I just so that I can prove to you, as a driving force, that I can. And that's that might sound like an ego thing, and maybe it is, but fuck it, because that's just that. That's how this industry works. I, I, when you bring that up, and I know this is not so for me, but I was talking to someone not too long ago, and I was telling them that artists aren't humble, and they're like, no, I think artists are humble. I'm like, no, the art of creation and art itself is not humble because you, you want people to see it, to transform lives. You need to break down those doors, to brag, to, <laughs> to do there, to be loud. Uh, and I was like, and you know, a, a, a humble artist is just a hobbyist, right? It's someone yeah. who's just doing something for fun. But it's like, if you're an artist and you're doing it for your art and the art of creation, that is rarely humble. Uh, (laughs) It's braggadocious as as possible, which probably what brings you to making your own films, right? So what was it like from doing those big segments, then going to, you know what? I've had this vision, I'm a writer, I'm gonna make my own. Okay, so, so here's what happened. I was making good money. I really was. But I'm an insanely ambitious person. Okay. Um, I want to do great things in life. I want to do big things in life. Okay. I also want to have a degree of control, which maybe isn't always the best. But I want to do that in my life. Mm-hmm. So what happened was... I started noti- like I noticed how much money is made on on licensing. It's ridiculous. I mean, these shows will charge like I think it's two and a half million dollars per episode for a license fee. With with all with and it makes sense because you're talking about a big hit show that's basically paying the bills for almost every network that it's on. Mm-hmm. And if you understand the business, you know how important that is. But. You, you, like, you see yourself and you're working a 30, 40 hour day. There's, no, there's not 30 hours in a day. There's not mm-hmm. 40 hours in a day. But you got to be there. So all of a sudden, the money that you're making every week almost seems like minimum wage. Mm-hmm. And you seem like you're a slave. Mm-hmm. You have the same title you know, as a person that's making billions of dollars and doesn't have to be on, show, on set all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's really an attractive proposition. And then I'm thinking to myself, well, what makes me any different that I can't do that? Mm-hmm. And having always realized that you can't do everything big the first time I, I knew that it was going to be a challenge, but that's when I realized, man, I really want to want to do this. So that's that's how that sort of itch came around, and I was like, okay, 
it has to happen has to happen has to happen you know what can I do how will I do it you know because the end goal isn't for me to say that I did it no I know I can fucking do it I already have I've proven it I've more than fucking proven it I've been to the sorts of levels that a lot of people wish that they could achieve and I did it on determination and showing just how fucking determined I am you know mm -hmm. And, but it's also that determination that made me want to be like the best at what I did when I was doing it. And the same determination that's making me want to do something where I'm saying, we did this. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm not realizing somebody else's vision. You know? So really that that's what kind of drove me. And you could say that that's, again, an ego drive. And maybe it is. But I make zero apologies for that. Mm -hmm. Because I'm sorry, I refuse to hide under a rock. Mm -hmm. And just appeal to, you know, to basically normalcy. I'm not a fucking normal person. Neither are you. This is why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. We are deeply, <laughs> we are deeply difficult, troubled individuals who are only happy when they are fucking creating. And I'm sorry mm. for the F-bombs. My apologies. I just get really passionate about this. So <laughs> we are deeply difficult individuals, and this is the only way we function. Mm -hmm. But thank your, thank your lucky stars that this is how we fucking function because we're giving you what you would otherwise not be able to have, which is entertainment, which is what might be driving you to not go crazy when you get home from doing whatever. Mm-hmm. So, and that's, that's what drove me, but it became, it became a, man, I don't know. It just became one of those things where I was like, I have to, just, I just have to, I can't, you know, I'm stubborn. I'm a stubborn SOB. Like I, I do things mm -hmm. and it's like yesterday we were, you know, I was thinking about this, um, and I was thinking about it again. I was like. How can you test yourself to do things? You know, how can you test yourself to prove to yourself that you're not BSing? And that's you try to go out and do things that no one in their right minds would do. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll get on a horse and I'll run as fast as I possibly can, knowing that there's a branch coming up that I'm going to have to duck under. I'll row a river for 14 miles when my arms feel like jello on the way back <laughs> I'll do things like that but that's what keeps me up nights that's what keeps me thinking man this is this is it you know like this is what we're gonna do mm -hmm. so uh, you know that's really my driving force so mm -hmm. so that going on to your own how did you get the idea for your first film um the first film that I worked on I was actually working with, uh, with a good friend of ours, Stephanie Fleming, who had told me about it. And I was like, well, this sounds interesting. Uh, it was boys' school. I was like, this sounds interesting. And we started um, with a very small crew. Uh, part of that crew was John Green, who's, who's our you know, editor and director of photography and you know, sometimes co-producer and a great guy. Yeah, shout out to John and yeah. to Stephanie. Shout out to John. And this was six years ago, um, six and a half years ago. And it was something that we started, you know, the calls were being made and everything. And it was about the story of um, the boys that had been abused at Mariana. And, and many of them had been killed and not given proper burial and overworked and all this stuff. You know, the kind of things that you don't think you would find in the United States ever, but you do. You just if you're, if you're not finding this because you're not looking hard enough. Mm. so um, that's that's where we started uh, and that was in 2015 and we started shooting and we tried to raise funds but with you know with Indiegogo and stuff like that it's always impossible to, to really raise proper funding so we figured ways around that and getting equipment I mean we shot we shot I, I kid you not we shot one two three four like five different cameras <laughs> which you know means different color profiles it means all this stuff like it was such a herculean effort 
that we made to get this film finished. And it took from beginning to a, and probably a couple of years for the film to, to be finished before it was being shown on, um, on you know, uh, festivals and stuff like that. And, 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 and considerably pointed thinking about what's going on with Canada and finding the kids buried underneath, which is kind of what you explore a little bit in boys' school, what was happening down here in Florida. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, and you know, the funny part about boys' school is, you know, want to talk about a set, basically. You know, this was run and gun, and for, for people that don't understand what run and gun means, basically, it's like you don't have, you know, you don't have grip, grip trucks or anything. You have what you need to shoot and then the people that you need to shoot it with. And John, you when we were doing a re-edit of the film, you shot with us, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yep. So we were going to Mariana where we weren't welcomed at no, all. No. no. And it, it, we were even less well it wasn't welcoming when you and I went there with our small crew. It was even less welcoming when we went with a slightly bigger crew. Um and you know, people were looking at us and it was like, oh, God, this is terrible. This is just terrible. Like, you, you always felt like someone was going to run you down with a truck or something just in the way that they looked at you. Mm. So, um... It almost felt like they didn't want the past to be brought up. Oh, like, 100%. not even deal with it. Not to even deal with it. Not mention it, not deal with it. 100%. And, you know, the, the funny part is, we actually weren't able to shoot in the places that we shot when you went there mm -hmm. years later. Because you went in like 2018. I believe mm -hmm. it was in 2018. So you went three years after the fact. Um, when everything was overgrown. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. The, the places were full of mold. And I was like, you know, Jonathan's got lungs of steel. They could actually do this. Um, but I, do not. I have weak boy lungs, but I, I'm steel. Will of Steel. <laughs> yeah, Will of Steel. <laughs> oh, screw it, screw it. We'll mention. We'll mention. We'll mention the next. We'll mention the documentary that came after because that's where that's where I was, you know, the most impressed. Um, but again, it was just one of those things where we needed to make that film. We wanted to make that film. It, we wanted to tell the story, you know. And the amount of time that it took us really to get it into distribution um, from when it was finished too was again a herculean effort you're talking about three years mm -hmm. where we were just working our butts off trying you know understanding that and this is one of those things like you have to understand from piece to piece you have to understand where you're improving but you have to understand whatever things you did wrong mm -hmm. and you're always going to do something wrong because if you don't have enough budget or you don't have enough people things aren't going to be as perfect as you'd like them to be, you know? Yeah. And of course there's always going to be people that are going to be critical of that. And to that, I said, you know, I've always said this, um, and this is very cliche, but it's true. Opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one. Yep. And, and as we're talking to independent filmmakers out there yourselves, mm -hmm. if you're there, realize that that timing's true. And not saying that your movie won't be quality, because I mean, quality is going to be great, but do not worry that it doesn't look like a Marvel film. That's a $200 no. million dollar budget with thousands of people working on exactly. it. Exactly. Uh <laughs> four, four to 5,000 employees is a little bit different, because like Jonathan mentioned earlier, it's a corporation. Yeah. Literally. Now, <laughs> yeah, it's a little corporation, and they got 200 million plus budgets to pay all those people. So uh, when you're talking, as Rick said, we, we talk small crews where you're going. And uh, most important independent filmmaking is is learning how to be better with the but budget. that does review. not mean, and, and John, you'll, I think you'll agree with me on this, that does not mean you cannot make something great that will be seen mm -hmm. with the same eyes, if not better, than a Marvel film. And that's what you have to understand. Stand, yep. Mm -hmm. You want to build yourself up in this business, that's great. Make sure that you're your method of storytelling, the story that you are choosing, and the way that you're doing things works the way people want it, the way people look and long for those stories. Mm -hmm. Look at documentaries that are on Netflix. Look at documentaries that are on, on um, uh, you know, Discovery, Prime and Discovery. I mean, mm -hmm. even if you don't agree with the story, look at 
the way that it was shot. I mean, look, not a lot of people are big fans of uh, My Octopus Teacher, but you can't deny that was beautifully shot. Forget True. about the story. The story's kind of creepy in every imaginable sense, but it was beautifully shot. Mm-hmm. You can't take that away. Yep. So, I don't yeah. think I don't think they had uh, full on uh, grip trucks in the ocean. No. <laughs> so. Okay. And then, uh, any interesting stories you want to tell us at boys' school before we 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 say at least one story from Betty Paoli? But we have a whole episode on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any stories from boys' school? Oh. I know yeah. there's so much. Yeah, I mean, you talk yeah, about the labor of love. There was a lot. There was a lot. There was a lot there. Um, from the actual set, yeah, yeah. There was one day where we were interviewing um, the men. It was the first time that we were interviewing the men. We were there for hours on end. Uh, it was at uh, Cape Coral, the house of uh, Jerry Cooper. Is one of the men that that. Um, that we interviewed he's just a, a great human being you know suffered a lot they were great when you when you met them you know really really great very uh gentle and everything like that but then when they started talking about the horrors that they went through the horrors that they went through you felt for them i I'm sorry because this one gets to me all the time. I was talking to this guy named Bill Price, rest his soul. He passed away some years. Before. The first, uh, he passed away when we won our first uh, uh, film festival. I was called and, and told that he had passed away. And I couldn't go to the, uh, to the festival because I was so, I'm sorry. But, you know, these men would tell you these stories and you just it was so hard you you couldn't look away and it was so hard to keep strong to to just keep yourself in you know separated from that that at one point i remember bill price telling me this really jovial amazing guy with an incredible sense of humor saying I wanted to make my sister proud, and then his voice broke. And I said, "We're we're cutting." And I said, "I'm sure you did, Bill." And I gave him a hug, and that stuck to me because you knew, you knew what they had gone through. You knew that it was horrible, and 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 yet, you know, they are still somehow able to tell you this story. So, it was. Um, it was harsh. That one was harsh for me personally. And, and, and you know, Bill, it wouldn't be too long uh, after that, not too, too long, that Bill w- would be diagnosed with cancer. And, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was hard. That was hard. So, mm. you yeah. know. Oh, that one. Well, boys' school was. I was proud to work on boys' school here, just to say that. You did. I know I came in on the some of the re-edits and reshoots, but that is a powerful film. And giving the people their chance to tell their story, uh, like I said, is pointed and so sure. great. Sure. Uh, and so when you're thinking about their uh, filmmakers out there, listen to something. There are real people behind these documentaries and the stuff. Uh, and sometimes their stories just being told is just all that they need. And sometimes, even though, again, we do things for, we want people to see it for clout, part of this also is to let them tell their stories in a way that they want to and get them out there as well. Yeah, so. absolutely. It's, it's about, you know, there's, there's um, it can't all be, you know, beautiful and uh, fictional. Sometimes you have to tell certain truths and there's reasons why we do it. And um, yeah, it's a big part of it. Content with a conscience, man. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, the next film after Boy School, which I know is that labor love, is Searching for Betty Paoli. And mm. before we get into stories on that, go and listen to that podcast episode, everyone. <laughs> That's what I'm going to leave you. We have a whole episode to really tell you about that film, uh, unless Rick has a story that he wants to tell that really wasn't uh, encompassed in that podcast. But we had a whole podcast in the making of it. I don't, I don't think I have any stories that that weren't told in that 
podcast. I would always say though, um, and this is uh, this is me being really, really honest. You know, uh, there's always going to be one bad apple in your in your crew. Don't allow yourself to, out of niceness, put up with that one bad apple's bullshit. And I'm going to say this, and I'm not going to name names, but John, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't care if that person is giving, is listening. I don't give two shits because I'm not afraid of anyone who's got anything to say, but don't let bad apples ruin your set with toxicity toxicity does not help a mm-hmm. set people who don't have their eye on the price and only think about one thing because you got to think about this too a lot of people get into this industry and they decide oh i'm going to do this because i'm going to make millions of dollars that's not how this works this takes years of understanding practice mm-hmm. knowing how to take the good with the bad knowing how to pick yourself up from the worst kind of BS you can imagine. From people putting you down, saying negative things about your work because they have nothing better to do. Hell, I got a bad review about about Beatty, and I'm not even going to say this guy's name because he's so freaking unimportant, but it didn't matter to me because the fact of the matter is I know how to make a film. He does not. He just talks about it. There is a difference. John, you know exactly what I mean Mm. because you're exactly in that same boat. We know what we're doing, okay? But the fact of the matter is, this isn't a business where you're thinking, I'm going to make millions of dollars by basically grabbing onto someone's coattails. So do not allow yourself to, for any reason whatsoever, take the bullshit of people that are thinking about 20 other things while on set and on location, you know? Mm -hmm. And and basically Mm -hmm. ruining what you have done mm-hmm. or you know because they don't like the fact that you're not going to tolerate their crap then they're going to bad mouth it or do not allow toxic stupid moronic people like that into your life and i say stupid and moronic and i'm sorry if this is not pc but you have got to be stupid and moronic if you don't understand the way things work and you don't educate yourself in the way fucking things work so do not allow mm. people like that into your set ever. Always be with people that will, when they say no about something, be able to back it up like professionals and say, this is the reason why something does not work or this is the reason why something does work. Mm-hmm. Okay. And don't be afraid of having those discussions either because that's exactly why I feel that I have an, like an incredible family in Trascali, an incredible team that I'm proud to be a part of. Mm-hmm. that I'm happy to be a part of because yep. we all have the same goal yep right but we're gonna do it together we're gonna work our asses off but the one things that I'm not seeing they're gonna let me know that I'm not seeing it and vice versa mm-hmm. but if you're a fucking idiot then and I'm not trying to be mean or non PC but go fuck yourself and let's leave it at that. All right. <laughs> let's leave it at that. Good people on your set. So, Rick, thank you so much for giving us kind of this history and this insight to being on set, especially for people who haven't uh, listeners who maybe don't know the behind the scenes curtain. They only ever see the finished project. They never know what happens behind the scenes and what it's like to work on. So I appreciate you really taking that that time to tell us. Thank all about you, brother. It. I appreciate you taking the time to to talk to me about it. I know I can get a little passionate. Uh, I love passion. I love that. <laughs> I love it. Uh, again, uh, we were having this talk before we start this uh, podcast of, uh, about uh, a certain films and movies like Picard, and I'm like, oh, I could tell you all day and talk about Picard because I'm so passionate about it. Uh, so I love passion. I love, I love talking. <laughs> I love hearing your stories. That's why we talk every week on this podcast. Right? Yes, that's why we talk every <laughs> week. But that's why, and I got to say this, that's why you know Jonathan's like a brother to me, mm-hmm. um, because he's a guy that's 100% passionate about success and quality at the same time and knows and understands let's work our asses off you know but we're going to make it work and that's the reason why and that's the people that you want to be around 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Any anything else is just garbage. <laughs> All right. Uh, for recommendations, go and listen to our Searching for Beauty Folly episode because uh, I think that will give you the last behind the set scene. Uh, besides that, the only other thing for me, are you ready for another clue? Yes. Another clue to what we're doing on. So there's uh, this old adjective in public speaking that says if you're nervous, you got to fake it till you make it. That's right. That's your, there you go. That's your I, I, I have one more. I have one more clue. I, I think I, I should give a clue at least once. Yeah, go ahead. Let's just give one clue. Pants and shoes, everybody wears them. All right. So we have, <laughs> we now have Ghostbusters, skirts, pants and shoes, everybody wears them. The Pixar movie up. <laughs> and like public speaking, fake it till you make it. Exactly. <laughs> and if that doesn't make any sense to you, don't worry. It makes no sense to us either. But we are testing you. We want I, I you. think it makes perfect sense to I, me. And I, I am giving this away. I feel like I'm just giving I, it away. I, I, I want to, to believe that. <laughs> so I'm going to go with you. Again. Comment on our <laughs> Instagram, Trash Kelly Productions. Let us know uh, uh, what you think the film is. If you get it right, if someone out there actually gets it right, I will send you a Toblerone. I'm going to make that promise right here. If you get it right, I'll send you a Toblerone. Uh, besides that, uh, of course, before we say it, because if you do it after we say it, no, that doesn't count. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you a total road. Uh, thank you again for listening to the podcast. Like, share, and subscribe. Tell your friends all about it. We really do enjoy our audience. It keeps growing. We're so proud of everyone out there for keep sharing it and listening with us. Uh, you're, we're bringing you into this Triskelion family, so thank you for being part of it. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, everyone. And uh, we shall see you again. Or you shall hear us again, however you want it. <laughs> On <Instead> set <of> magic. <laughs> That's right.